Welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco. Today's guest is Nick Kalfas. Nick Kalfas is a PhD student at the University of Adelaide studying the Albany pitcher plant. Nick Kalfas, thank you for joining me on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. Well, it's going to be a good one. We're talking about plants that eat animals. <laughs> yeah, it, look, look it's, uh, it's one of the more sexy um, botanical topics out there, I reckon. Yeah, when I think about like, how do we get people interested in botany? Carnivorous plants is right at the top of the list. Yeah, so I've always found kind of carnivorous plants or uh, parasitic plants. Definitely. People like plants that um, <laughs> in some way stuff over other species. Yeah, you know. well, I, I get the appeal. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so, Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Uh, so, at the moment, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Adelaide. I look at uh, Kephalotus, which is a pitcher plant that grows over in Western Australia. Um, the, the topic that I'm mainly focusing on, though, is its relationship with its co-occurring species. Interesting. Uh, I love plant-animal interaction, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, cool, cool. So how did you, how did you end up studying Kephalotus? So um, I grew up in Wyala in country uh, South Australia. I grew up just outside of it, so I uh, used to go out on my push bike and I'd collect lizards and snakes and insects and I'd, I'd classify them and stuff like that. I knew I wanted to get into biology of some kind. Um, came to uni uh, straight out of high school and decided I wanted to study sea snakes. Was obsessed with the idea and prepared myself for a life of, uh, you know, ha- hanging off of boats, being <laughs> a windswept and interesting. Uh, but then one single lecture in my third year uh, on carnivorous plants by the lovely John Conran convinced me I had a, an epiphany, a religious moment. <laughs> and yeah, and, and uh, honestly, if I die studying very little else, I will be ecstatic. Cool. Love it. Cool. So tell us a little bit about, the, so the Kephalotus. Yeah, Kephalotus. The Albany pitcher plant. That's exactly it. Cool. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, like, what, what's this plant doing? Where is it growing? Tell us a little bit about its ecology, I guess. Uh, so one of, the, one of the main things that attracted me to it is uh, where it grows. So it's exclusively over in southwest Western Australia. Um, so it'll grow in swamps, uh, disjunct swamps in between Albany and Augusta. So right through all the way up to Margaret River region, um, which is you know, lovely to do field work in. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so, yeah, it occurs there. It's, it's a very, very small species. Um, large pitchers, so the large traps will get up to, God, the, some of the biggest ones that I've measured are eight centimetres tall. It'll grow underneath this really dense vegetation in hyper-diverse swamps and will eat all the lovely uh, creeper crawlies that'll crawl through. Yeah, there's just so much that, that fascinates me about it. Um, one of the things about it is it's uh, evolutionary, let's say, uniquity. Yep. Um, yeah. So it's a monotypic, the family it belongs to is monotypic, right? Yep. Do you want yeah. to explain what that means? So uh, the way it's been classified at the moment, so ever since, God, I think it was APG, APG2. So, so that's the Australian plant genome uh, classification. So it's been, it was put in its own uh, genus, the species, a long, long time ago, and it's been bounced around where this genus belongs and... It's been recognised for a while that it's actually belonging to its own family. So it's the only species in this genus, the only genus in this entire family, meaning it is... Very unique. Very unique, yeah. Yeah, yeah when placing it on a tree, it's on its own little branch. 
Do we know much about the sister taxa to this this group? Yeah, so um, it, the, the closest genetic relatives that it has are members of Iliocarpaceae and Brunelliaceae, which, I mean, if, if anyone knows, the majority of them are, you know, medium-sized to large woody shrubs and trees. Also occurring in Australia? Yeah, also occurring in Australia. A lot of its sister taxa genetically occur over in Queensland, actually. So you mentioned creepy crawlies. So mm-hmm. what, what is what exactly is this plant, I guess, eating in quotes? And yeah. How do things are? How are things enticed into its trap, and how does how does that whole thing work? Oh, I'm going to ramble. So, um, a study has actually been done on its primary prey, and actually, the the primary prey species that it has is um, an ant, a stick nest building ant called Aridomyrmex conifer. Now, this ant it's called a stick nest ant because it will build these gigantic mound nests that it will make out of you know dried up reeds and sticks and things like that. They they are such an indicator for the perfect uh, habitat for, for the plants or other plants that I'm interested in. Right. Um, once you start seeing these little mounds, you know you, you, you've hit a good spot. Um, so they're, they're in such high numbers in these areas that yeah, the floor of the swamps are crawling with them. And so the traps of the plants are, are, are absolutely crawling them as well. Not that they're crawling anymore. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so Kephalotus... So the traps that it has, so it grows both laminar leaves, so just flat, regular green leaves. Photosynthesizing leaves. Absolutely. And also develops these, these, these completely separate trap leaves. So these are so, so heavily specialised to, to attract, kill and digest prey. Um, some of the enticing methods, uh, it'll have, it has a nectar glands on the inside, um, providing a little sweet treat. It'll have scent glands. Uh, and also, funnily enough, in the lid of it, in the lid of it, you'll see these kind of white, semi-translucent patches. Yeah, yeah, and I've so, seen pictures. Yeah. I was wondering about that. When the light hits them, they actually kind of act as a, a you know, the bug zapper lights. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, flying insects or you know even crawling insects will be attracted to these. Whoa. Go up into the, into the room. Oh, what's that? Oh, there's nectar in here. Oh, fantastic. I want to go get some of that. Now, once it's inside the trap. There is a whole bunch of mechanisms to keep them there. There's inwards-facing hooks, yeah. microstructures, slippery zones, <laughs> and yeah. So essentially, once something is in there, it's it's not coming out. So in the trap, you've got some kind of liquid. Is that like rainwater? Is that some kind of exudate from the leaf? What's what's going on in the really, inside of the trap? Really good question. So kephalote is actually quite unique in that in uh, when compared to other pitcher plants. So majority of pitcher plants, a majority of that fluid is taken it is, is uh, comprised of rainwater and when they open up uh, from being juvenile traps they're actually dry they will collect rainwater and, and you know uh, other condensation that kind of thing yep. and then um, through little glands that it has on the inside they'll then pump uh, relevant chemicals like digestive enzymes mm-hmm. and acids and things like that Kepalotus actually opens up with a whole pool of liquid already in there so wow. it, the, the the glands are already fully formed and will pump in a whole bunch of liquid and it will top up with rainwater inevitably but yeah yeah, so it's ready for trapping and eating immediately cool (laughs) that's super cool yeah so the evolution of carnivorous plants Mm. i've I've really been thinking about this how how do do we know how they evolved what are the what are the environmental or ecological factors that would lead to plants to want to digest animals as Mm. their source of nutrition it's essentially, let's call it niche filling. So in, in highly competitive areas or areas of, of you know, relatively low nutrients, 
you know, pl- plants, uh, when, when, when given kind of a directional evolutionary um, push, will uh, get that nutrient source from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, there, there's some really, really fun theories out there about the indentations of leaves mm. um, over time, collecting rainwater, acting as little pools. Uh, when there's any pool of water, a whole bunch of invertebrates will go and you know, either lay eggs or you know, uh, frogs will spawn in there and things in those environments will, will die in that environment and you know, it will settle to the bottom and then it, it's, it's all about having mechanisms to absorb those nutrients you know, th- through the cells. So, so that is essentially one of the leading theories on how pitcher plants as a whole, so, so uh, pitcher plants being plants with that same strategy as that, careful that type of trap. Yes, uh, where there's just a, a passive trapping mechanism with a pool yeah. of water. Once you get in, you're dead, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's the leading theory, I think, with, with, with the evolution of those, those, um, those plants. But th- there are so many trapping mechanisms out there in the world of carnivorous plants, it's, it's not funny. So the morphology that the plant would have to have had initially, it's just a depression in the surface of the leaf? It, it, that is potentially, yes. Potentially. So, so, so Kephalotus itself is a funny one in that it has completely separate laminar leaves and trapping right, leaves. Right, I see. So say, um, yeah, morphologically, you, you'd call it a sister taxa of Nepenthes. Now these are gigantic to, to tiny pitcher plants uh, in the tropics let's mm-hmm. so all through Southeast Asia Madagascar New Caledonia all these places has have Nepenthes species now these actually will have their laminar leaves then out of the tip of the leaves yeah. will come an extra tendril which will then form into a trap so having that one structure so, so, so that, 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 that initial simple leaf um, let's call it the parent taxa of all carnivorous plants mm-hmm. for the sake of this conversation it's not too far-fetched to say that it was just a modification of a regular leaf which yep. then developed into this all these crazy, strange traps that are out there now. Cool. You mentioned uh, frogs spawning mm-hmm. in traps and things like that. Yep. Is there a particular ecology within the trap of Kephalotus? Yeah, there is actually. So Kephalotus, one, another one of the things that, um, that attracted me to it, aside from its evolutionary iniquity, uh, is its relationship with the wingless fly, um, Badesis ambulans. Now, the, <laughs> this is a funny one. So, you know how I did say that once you're in the traps, you're not getting out? Right. And that's not 100% accurate. Uh-huh. Every once in a while, things can get out if they're tactical enough. You can lean in or whatever. Rock climbing now, insects. Rock climbing insects, yeah. <laughs> they're great forearms. Um, <laughs> so, Badesis ambulans actually lays its eggs in the pitches of, of this, this plant. When they hatch, the larvae will then use this unending resource of trapped and rotting prey material. They will go down into the fluid for, for short periods. They've got these uh, little hooks that will kind of just tear apart the meat and they'll eat it. And, and once they're ready to pupate, they can crawl out and pupate in the soil, emerge as your wingless adults and go off and do whatever they do. There's actually not much we know about the behaviors of the adult flies. Right. Yeah. You mentioned um, they're digesting these insects, get their nutrients out. So is there like a correlation between the types of soils? I think you said swamps, right? So yep. swamps typically nutrient poor. Do you find like a co-occurrence of nutrient poor soils and carnivorous plants in general? Or? Um, it, so with the swamps, with the hypodiverse swamps, rather than it being um, nutrient poor, it's more that it's in competition with so many oh, other species. 
so actually the, the peat soils of these swamps, uh, especially over in southwest WA, are actually quite good. And they support a whole bunch of um, critically endangered species and hyperdiverse orchids and uh, trigger plants, all these funky things. And then you've got this tiny herbaceous <laughs> kind of just plant trying to trying to compete with the rest. Right. That's um, actually not what I would have expected. Yeah. I would have expected, you know, if you're evolving these strategies to yeah. acquire nutrients, my, my initial thought was that you're just, you're exploiting a, a niche that other plants can't grow in because of that resource limitation. Mm. Whereas you're saying that it's actually to do with competition between co-occurring species for nutrients. I mean, a lot of the way that I see it with Kephalotus, that is one of its one of its main motivators. Yeah, but I'm not saying that for all carnivorous yeah, plants. Just they're, this they're, one species. Yeah, so there are Drosera species, which you'll find in, in arid Australia. Mm -hmm. So Drosera, the, the sticky sundew plants, uh, that Australia actually has the highest diversity of. So. Well, we have over 100 species of yeah. Drosera. Yeah, and the, the just that one genus, not the family. Yeah. And uh, Jocera is just one of those hyper-diverse um, groups as well. That, that's a whole nother, whole nother podcast. Also carnivorous, we should point out. Yeah, absolutely. So, so these guys uh, have little uh, sticky tentacles which will uh, attract and wrap and stick to whatever prey crawls upon it. Um, they're great. Uh, anyway, but they, uh, a lot of their success comes from their ability to utilise these kind of poor um, nutrient areas like your, your arid zones or things like that. So talking about carnivorous plants in general, we've got two now. We've got the the pitfall trap, mm -hmm. the the pitcher. We've got the sticky pad, the the sundew. Mm -hmm. What are some other strategies that carnivorous plants employ to catch and digest insects? Uh, so uh, well, you've got the iconic uh, dionia, the the Venus, Venus flytrap, fly yeah. something that will have a few trigger hairs, and uh, once you've triggered enough of them, the mechanism will actually shut over them. Uh, so this is an active trap active. versus you mentioned that the pitcher is passive. passive. It's not actually doing anything where so, the, the Venus's flytrap actually has to be triggered in a way to actively move. Yeah. And, and that, that, that triggering system isn't just used with the Venus flytrap. There's also one uh, fantastic one, Utricularia. Um, another bladderwort. Yeah, bladderwort, another hyperdiverse uh, group in, in Australia as well. Yeah, we have um, over 50 species of area. I did look this up you, before this. You did a really good job here. <laughs> well, I like just, that. Just as a side, I just want to point out that we Australia actually has a really high diversity of carnivorous plants. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why, but um, we have over 180 species. So that's higher per you know, area than many other places on Earth. Yeah, that so. doesn't surprise me at all. But yeah, Utricularia. That's happens. a really cool stat that I didn't know. Thank you very much. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> um, so area, what they'll put above ground is essentially... Uh, single stem and this like almost like a, a spade like flower yep. um, very attractive will grow in high numbers uh, if you go to most wet swamps uh, even around the the Adelaide Hills area you're likely to come across them um, but underneath the soil with all their roots and everything like that these tiny little little traps that are little vacuoles of, of kind of pressurized air they pushed all the water out and they've also got a little trigger so if anything, any any subterranean um, burrowing beetle or annelid or something like that, like a nematode a, or yeah, something. something something funky like that, goes across it and triggers that trigger, that vacuum will open up and it'll suck. It'll suck in. Right. So the, it's like negative pressure. Yeah. Pulling. Yeah. Cool. And it's such such an intricate trap that for that to have evolved, you know, by a random mutation, of course, with directional selection, is just absolutely fascinating to me. And and that is a great example of occupying a niche that otherwise wasn't you know how, how many plants can you say hump things underground that's very cool yeah utricular yeah. is the only one i can think of they're funky there are others but there are <laughs> yeah we'll get into that oh cool so 
you were doing your field work in Southwest WA. Yep. We've, we've mentioned a couple of times that you know that plants and animals actually they're very unique. So it's this one of the twenty five great biodiversity hotspots on Earth. Something like eighty percent of the species that occur there occur nowhere else. Yep. So do we have an idea about why? WA is so highly biodiverse. Is it isolation? Is it specific environmental conditions? It's been written about a lot. I, I can't say with 100% certainty. I can say that there is fantastic resources out there. But it, it, areas like, say, southwest WA or New Caledonia, areas with like really, really high endemism, you can usually attribute it to ancient uh, geology. So movement of movement of continents, movement of glacial like glacial movement during the ice age and with southwest wa that's the case so everything around it was kind of scraped clean um this has remained so for example um i'm not sure god i have no idea where the where the most recent ice age comes into the geological time time scale as as far as i'm aware southwest wa hasn't been glaciated in like 100 million years yeah it's just one of these rare patches because even south australia was you know halico yep You've got glacial pavements. This was totally covered in ice. Where WA, for whatever reason, just its positioning on the Earth from 100 million years until the present, everything there has been evolving sort of unchecked. That is the leading thought as to why there's such a high degree of endemism there. Um, So, like another another example I mentioned of kind of a monotypic taxis, so the only species in its genus, that Bedesis that I, the wingless fly. Yeah. It's again the only gen- the only species in its genus, and that that's the case with so many groups there, and it's most likely due to that that kind of that diversity never being wiped clean. Right. Um, Lotus itself, uh, in in recent works, has kind of been dated as to diverging as a species around sixty million years ago in the Maastrichtian. So like, th- this is it, it's been a constant uh, ecosystem for so so long. That's very cool. Yeah. That's really really cool. I mean, I'm not even sure about. You know the northern Amazonia. I'm fairly sure that that was that's been glaciated more recently yep. than Southwest WA. And you think of we think of tropics as being super biodiverse, but you know just being a tropical ecosystem isn't the whole thing to the story when we're talking about biodiversity and endemism. Yeah, it's, it, and and something that that's absolutely crazy to me is is people are always very surprised when I mention Southwest WA and and compare it to things like the Amazon. They go, yeah. wait, what? It, it's it's not well talked about, but something that is talked about is their wildflower season yeah. overseas. People will come from all corners of the globe to that corner of, of Australia, but Australians don't know about it. Yeah. If and I think there's a lot that the, the Australian tourists can get out of going to Southwest WA, I purely, purely looking at, just at the, the variety of species there. I'll certainly be making the pilgrimage before too long. I'll give you some site locations. Excellent. <laughs> Great. Just quickly, um, we are talking about pitcher plants and you mentioned Nepenthes. Yep. And we're also talking about the fact that Cephalotus is a monotypic taxa in, yep. a, in a family that has only one genus and species. So that must mean that pitchers evolved independently. They, yeah, they've evolved independently multiple times in both the, the dicots and the monocots. Right. So two, two completely different... Totally com- separate lineages. So the totally separate lineages. So there's actually a, um, yeah, a monocot pitcher plant in uh, Burkinia which is over in kind of your, your Guyanan area, so, so uh, yeah. South America. And it, it, so it, it looks very similar to, say, a bromeliad in that it has kind of a central pool, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just very well known to be a carnivorous plant. So monocots, dicots, all ends of the dicot, so within the rosids, within other groups, it's popped up multiple times. Uh, so, so Cephalotus is more closely related to, like, an oak tree than it is to 
some of the other pitcher plants then. Yes. That's that's pretty wild. Isn't it? Yeah, that's a perfect example of con- convergent evolution. So we're not even talking about parallel evolution because yeah. the we might be going too deep into evolution. Yeah, no, I just want to bore everyone. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I do love this idea of convergent evolution because yeah. what, it, what it shows to me is that, you know, in the natural system, there are fundamental ways of being. You know, if you want to be passively digesting insects, well, the seems to me that the best way to do that is to form a pitcher plant and evolution can whittle down an organism over time and just make a pitcher like that's really really cool yeah and like something else to add into that convergent uh, evolution idea is uh, the the convergence of its relationship with other species so other animals in order to to be as successful as possible so with cephalotus it actually uh, utilizes this something that i found out in my studies was the wingless fly larvae uh, by digesting a whole chunk of their prey will reduce the risk of putrefaction ah. uh, so, so the the putrefying of of, of pulling so it's rotting a symb- prey symbiote. exactly and you see this throughout all other pitcher plants. Within Nepenthes, there's a really great species called Nepenthes hemsleana. And something that they do is they act as a roost for a particular species of bat. And they'll, um, the bat will defecate oh, into cool. this. Uh, <laughs> defecate, and it, so it's effectively using the bat as a, as a first stomach. Yeah, it's a shit-eating plant. shit-eating plant. <laughs> but it, what, they, what these really, really cool scientists did was they did what's called bioresonance, a bioresonance study on it. So they shot sound waves at these plants. And they found that the, the, re- the, the frequency that reflected was the, ref- the, the frequency of the echolocation click of this species of bat. Cool. So these things aren't just evolving to uh, consume prey and all that stuff. They're evolving to interact really, really, really specially with these certain species. Yeah. And this is across the board. With I could talk about this forever. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, talking personally, the thing that attracted me mostly to cannabis plants wasn't the fact that they're cool and eat things. It's the fact that they are so ready evolutionarily to have these adaptations to interact. Yeah, with yeah. And going back to how we started this conversation, you know, we we so often people think of plants as these static things, but really they're just like all other organisms. They're interfacing and interacting with everything else in their their ecological system. And this conversation's been a great case study in that and it's been really great nick thank you no thank you so much brad just before you go um i believe you have a book out Tell yeah us about i do that. i do um so myself and a bunch of other fantastic um academics have come together and uh written a monograph so uh, we've collected all known literature plus uh, things that uh, myself and these other um lovely people have done uh, to make the first detailed monograph of uh, cephalotus yeah, it's nice. called Cephalotus the Albany Pitcher Plant. Uh, it's available through Redfern Natural History Pub Productions. Yeah, it's, it's available now, and it's actually, it, it, I'm so proud of the way that's come out. It's good absolutely stuff. fantastic. That's good to hear. And if people want to find more, more about yourself, if you've got an Instagram or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I do. So um, if anyone has any questions or uh, just any general inquiries, or, or uh, if they're going to the Southwest and want to know cool places to go, the way that people contact me typically is through my Instagram. Uh, so that's at Calfasns. That's K-A-L-F-A-S-N. Yeah, so, so feel free to contact me through there. Yeah, well, that's it's a very generous offer, and we'll certainly link to where people can find your book and also your Instagram. Thank so you very much, Brad. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Cheers. Absolutely my pleasure. Great. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. 
If you're liking the content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight. If you'd like to support the production of this content, you could become a member of the Biology Society. Visit biologysocietysa.com.